0: This is Backstory. I'm Brian Ballow. In the early 19th century, 20,000 pigs roamed the streets of New York. They were kind of the city's garbage collectors.
1: These pigs are not like the pigs you would see in a movie like Babe.
0: That was one of Backstory's more surprising stories. We've also talked to history makers, like former Oklahoma Senator Fred Harris. President Lyndon Johnson asked Harris to investigate the causes of the race riots in the 1960s. He said,
2: I want you to remember you're a Johnson man. He said, if you forget it, I'll take my pocket knife and cut your blank off. He didn't say blank. (laughs)
0: Today, we're revisiting some of our most talked about pieces and interviews, along with a few of our favorite bloopers. In our last show in the Civil War, we looked at how the election of Abraham
3: Lincoln...
0: Just can't say his name, can
3: he? (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Right. Through clenched teeth, it's hard to talk Coming up, the best of Backstory. Major funding for
1: Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
3: From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Ed Ayers, here with Peter Onoff. Hey there, Ed. And Brian Ballow. Hey there, Ed. This is the second of a two-part series revisiting the best of backstory from the past eight years. Now, one thing we pride ourselves on is bringing history to life, especially history that most Americans have forgotten or maybe even never learned. Back in 2012, we decided to tackle the War of 1812. We began by asking people what that war was about, and we kept getting the same answer.
4: I have no idea.
5: <laughs> <laughs> <Absolutely> nothing. <laughs> Got nothing. I'm going to look it up on my phone. I didn't even really know it was a thing. What do you reckon?
3: You reckon... I reckon I Google it. <laughs> hey, let's Google it. Find it out. Because, I don't know. We could have just Googled it too, frankly, but we decided to ask Peter what actually happened in the War of 1812. Now, his job was to keep our attention by making the war into a movie. And I have to say... Peter knocked it out of the park.
1: I want you to sit back and take a wide-angle view. We got a very cast of characters. This is going to be a spectacle. We have the British North Americans, otherwise known now as Canadians. We have the Native Americans, the Indians trying to hold on to their land. We have got the nasty Brits, our historic enemy. This is the Second War for American Independence, and we've got the Americans and their fragile new republic. Ed, pass the popcorn. Hey, look, this new republic is at risk. Think of the United States as the damsel in distress. And how are the men going to stand up and protect Lady Liberty against the old despotic mother country? So what you got to do is, what's that Japanese movie, Rashomon, in which we have multiple perspectives? Yep. Brian. Brian. Hold on to your seat. I want you to turn your perspective. This has got to be one of those swivel chairs. I want you to look east. I want you to look across the Atlantic. I want you to look at what's happening out there. The British are capturing our ships. This is the Great War between Britain and France, the Napoleonic Wars. It's in the final phases. And Americans are suffering the consequences because they're caught in the crossfire. Okay, you got the picture? I got it. Big deal. Yeah. Okay, swivel that chair back, and I want you to look north. And you say, well, you know, the people who live there, those Canadians, they wish they were in the United States. So all we got to do is show up and they'll roll over. We're looking north. We're really upset. We're looking east. We're really upset. We're going to invade Canada. President James Madison, he may have been a short guy, but he was ready to stand tall.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, Peter, that's very gripping, what we see from the east and from the north. What if we swivel the chair to the West?
1: This has been an uplifting spectacle until now, but I'm afraid this is gonna be tragic because we got losers out there. We got Native Americans, allies of the British, promised protection, promised a buffer state, promised their land, but they're the big losers. They're not represented at the Treaty of Ghent, so they couldn't protect their interests and the British let them down. So what we see is the end, the tragic end of Indian country. So Peter, the Treaty of Ghent. Yeah. What was that? What did it do? December 1814. It ended the war, and guess what we got? We got four Latin words. Status quo antebellum. The same old, same old. Nothing changed, nothing happened. But Peter, my understanding is the war doesn't actually end with the Treaty of Ghent. Well Ed we save the best for last as the credits are rolling Andrew Jackson is rolling in to New Orleans with his Kentucky riflemen and 2 weeks after the treaty is signed at Ghent because it takes so long for information to get across the ocean the Americans win their first great victory on land at New Orleans and they mow down those British soldiers
3: That segment on the War of 1812 is one of our favorites among the many episodes we've done over the years. Peter brought history to life, which is what backstory does best. Today in the show, we're going to revisit some of our most memorable moments over the years, and we're even going to play a few
1: bloopers. But first, we wanted to share with you selections from some of our strangest segments over the years. Back in 2015, we produced an hour on the history of trash in America, One of our producers at the time, Kelly Jones, called up historians Brett Mizell and Catherine McNewer to tell the story of trash collecting in 19th century New York City. But let's just say those trash collectors weren't exactly unionized.
4: Pigs eat pretty much anything organic, even bones, even human waste. So they were turned loose to clean up the garbage and get fat on New York trash.
5: And I should note, these aren't feral pigs. They're owned by mostly poor New Yorkers, also by butchers, too, who would set them out. Because basically, they were getting free meat that was being generated from the city's waste. The, the, they were turning waste into
4: protein. In the early 19th century, New York was mostly concentrated south of what's now Central Park. And the pigs roamed everywhere. And what's unbelievable is just how many pigs there were.
5: And around 1820, I found an estimate that there was about 20,000 pigs, which is roughly about
4: one pig for every five New Yorkers. 20,000 pigs in the city. And these weren't pink, cuddly farm piggies.
1: Right. These pigs are not like the pigs you would see in a movie like Babe. These pigs are bristly, kind of making a living as best they can. You wouldn't see too many fat, lazy pigs in New York
2: City.
4: City pigs took no guff, and they were pretty big, ranging from 100 to 300 pounds. Sometimes horses would bump up into them and there'd be
5: accidents because of the pigs. Pigs would also kind of bully pedestrians around, so people would get knocked over and knocked around.
1: Yeah, they just don't don't care. I mean, my sense from the accounts I've read of pigs in New York in the 19th century is that they kind of don't care if you're in their way or not, they're going to go do their thing. It's probably a pretty good life, actually.
4: But elite New Yorkers didn't care if the pigs were happy. They were conscious that free-range pigs made New York look pretty backward. European visitors wrote accounts of urban American life, and they made fun of the pigs. The most famous example came from Charles Dickens.
0: Here is a solitary swine lounging homeward by himself. He is in every respect a Republican pig, going wherever he pleases and mingling with the best society on an equal, if not superior, footing.
4: Those Republican pigs, said elites, had to go.
0: Speaking of four-legged creatures, we also produced an episode on the history of domesticated animals. Now, to tell you the truth, I was looking forward to what I assumed would be a light fluffy episode of Backstory. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) Because in that episode, historian Amy Wood told us about executions, some by hanging, some by firing squad, of, wait for it, circus elephants. Yeah, Brian, and these
3: were very public executions. Crowds would gather to watch, newspapers would describe the scene, and the charges against the elephants would be read. I asked Wood to tell us about a few of these cases.
5: There's Nick uh, in 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1899, and then there's Dick in 1900, and then there's Columbia executed in 1907. And what's interesting is that in those cases, the circus—I don't know if it was the owner or the circus keepers and trainers—lined up the other elephants for them to watch their fellow elephant be executed. And that's where you get the language of this isn't just a joke. Right. I mean, it it sounds funny to us, but for the people at the time, for them to do that and they talk about uh, when they're, you know, in the in the news reports, they say we wanted this to be a lesson to the other elephants. We wanted this to be a warning to the other elephants of what the price of disobedience is. And then they showed all sorts of kind of shock and disappointment when the other elephants, you know, watched the execution indifferently.
3: So, that was pretty grim, I have to admit, but it was not quite as grim as the show we did on the history of death in America, and I had the surreal experience of visiting my own gravesite. At the time, I was proudly president of the University of Richmond, and all people in that position get this wonderful perk, their own plot in the historic graveyard where Presidents James Monroe and John Tyler are buried. Let's hear a bit of that, Ed. Well, I'm having the unusual sensation of standing at a place that's been reserved for my burial site. I'm proud and somewhat relieved to see that we're on a beautiful knoll that lets us look off in enormous distances in every direction. And what I look around seeing are remarkable sculptures of everything from a Celtic cross there that could have been a thousand years old to lilies of the field to Egyptian obelisks uh, it sort of reminds you that, uh, like American history, that I've spent my life studying, these things last. That there are marks on the land, and uh, who knows? Maybe one day there'll be a mark here for me in some way. Well, I to remember how to get here, so it's actually pretty close to the entrance, isn't it? Here he is. yeah,
6: that's
0: Ed, you know, since Peter and I don't have burial plots reserved for us at the <laughs> University of Virginia— But it, we're looking. Yeah, we're looking. Uh, tell me, what did that feel like, looking at your own gravesite? Well, it was a little, <laughs> a little spooky to think about. it,
3: You know, and you look around, and you see, if you were going to have some words attached to you forever, what would they be? Maybe he was one of the history guys.
1: One of the history guys. That's very beautiful.
0: We've gone to a lot of unusual places for backstory over the years. For a show on the history of Catholics in America, I visited a convent run by cheese-making nuns. Why they would send the Jewish lactose intolerant guy for this gig, I have no idea.
4: I do put a lot of prayers for the people (laughs) who are gonna have the cheese, for so many people who ask us for uh, prayers, who tell us- For the
0: history of firearms, I went to a gun show in Richmond, Virginia.
6: Primarily, there are a lot more military-style weapons, more weapons for home defense, much more so in the last 10 or 15 years. But the increase-
0: And I even went to a racetrack to learn about the history of drag racing. Dodge, what is this? Three uh, and four. Definitely a Dodge. That's a Dodge Neon. Dodge Neon? Yeah. Right. No, we're, we're, we're literally looking at cars that you
1: might see on the street. <laughs> okay. Some of them
0: are really... But what sticks up. with me most was a show we did back in 2008 on the history of punishment in America. For that episode, I stopped on the side of a highway to talk to prisoners who were picking up garbage. I spoke with a man named Herbert Bose. I started by asking him if he saw the roadside work as a punishment or a reward.
6: Mentally being away from my family, just being incarcerated, period, sure. that is punishment. You know what I'm saying? But as far as being out here, nah, man, it's a privilege, man. I love yeah. it. I get to come out here and get fresh air, you know what I'm saying? Sunlight. A lot of people don't have that privilege. You know, they're, they're confined to a small space all day. And I look at a whole bunch of other people that just like them, I mean, I mean, I don't know.
0: We're standing out here by a road. People are driving by. How do you feel about the public aspect of this? You, are are you ashamed, or do you see people you know sometimes? Anyone ever ask someone to get you a cheeseburger on the way, or? You <laughs> uh, know, what
6: how does that how does that work? Sometimes, sometimes. See, I'm from Alma County, so sometimes it depends on the area we're in. I do feel a little ashamed, but I mean, this program takes very good care of me, you know what I'm saying? I get paid for what I do. So I don't have to call home, ask for money or anything like that. So basically I said, they are going to work, so am I. Can I, a-
0: can I ask you how much you get paid for this?
6: Uh, we get paid $3 a day, $15 a week. Can
0: I ask you how long you've been in prison?
6: Uh, I've been locked up going on 22 months.
0: And may I ask you when you think you're gonna get out?
6: I'll get out December 19th, I God willing.
0: May I ask you, and you don't have to answer this, what what you're in for?
6: Um. I'm here for a violation and driving on a revoked license.
0: I see. Seems like a lot of time for a <laughs> yeah. revoked license.
6: Yeah, well, after uh, after they see you for a couple of times, you know, more than I twice, see. then I, I they see. tend to lay the hammer down on
0: you. So. Yeah. Do you think all this time you've spent in prison is, is going to have any effect at all?
6: I'll <sighs> tell you what. The last few times I came to jail, I, I didn't want to change my behavior. After this time, I can't do it no more. What's different? Age. Yeah. Like I've, I've gotten older, I've matured. How old are you, Mr. Buddy? I'm 30 years old. 30 years old. Yep. In my adolescent days, I didn't really care. You know, I ripped around the streets, didn't really care much. But now I have kids, I got three children, so they need a father figure, you know what I'm saying? And I gotta be a role model. I don't want my sons to go through what I've had to go through.
0: Could I ask you how often you get to see your kids?
6: Uh, I don't, I don't see them. You
0: don't see them? No, do? I don't. Is that the toughest thing about being in prison?
1: Yeah,
6: huh. yeah.
3: Well, you know, that segment, Brian, reminds us of something else important to remember. Uh, some things don't change. Uh, parents love their children. Yeah. People make mistakes and have to pay for them. Um, is that a part of history? Is that worth remembering? Um, you know, we, we're we always talking about change, but is it worth remembering the things that don't change? Yeah, you know, and I, I
1: think we do need to remember that because we share these basic facts with everyone who came before. We're here for a short time, and some of our time may be time that we spend in places we don't want to be because of things we've done. We make a lot of choices and then we're gone. So it gives you a kind of perspective on everything.
0: And Ed, I'd say one of the other things that doesn't change uh, is the kind of inequities that are built in to some of our most basic ways of governing each other. And there's probably no more inequitable institution than the criminal justice system in Mm. America right now.
1: Now, most listeners don't realize that much of what we record on Backstory ends up on the cutting room floor.
0: And in that pile of discarded tapes are hours and hours of bloopers. We asked our producers to put together the best of the oops. Welcome to Backstory, Susanna.
6: Backstory. Oh, hello.
5: Oh, you're Backstory. Right. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry we
7: don't get that here. (laughs)
3: Peter Bryant, there's just no way we can do a show on horror without talking about Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he helped invent the modern horror story. My heart's in my mouth. It's going to tell tales. <laughs> wow. God. Would you like to give them another choice, Peter? Just in case. No. Okay. I
1: think a nice segue. Somebody just might say, "Ugh," you know, something like that.
3: The decision was thrown to the House of Representatives. <laughs> In our last show in the Civil War, we looked at how the election of Abraham Lincoln. Just can't say his name, can he? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right through clenched
0: teeth, it's hard to talk. (laughs) It's like tongue. Ooh. It's it's somebody's. It's somebody's tongue. I I need a napkin. Brian, quit talking. I need a napkin. We can analyze it after we've eaten it.
1: That made me panic. It's (laughs) contagious. And I wasn't paying attention, so I didn't
3: panic at all.
2: Okay, how many have to do this?
3: Those bloopers are certainly some of my favorite moments from the sometimes messy process of making backstory. But over the past few weeks, our listeners have shared some of their
2: own favorites. Hey, History Guys. My name's Jeremiah Conway. I teach high school in Brooklyn, New York. Just wanted to call in and say how much I've appreciated and enjoyed the show over the years. Whether you guys were talking about mail service in America or the history of advertising or the history of our four square meals, I've really appreciated the show over the years.
3: Jeremiah told us of his favorite moment, and it turned out to be one that a lot of our listeners cited. It happened during an episode on the history of veterans. I was interviewing Frank Ernest, a member of the Virginia Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. That's an organization that, as its name implies, is made up of descendants of men who fought on the southern side of the American Civil War.
8: A uh, great-great-grandfather who rode with the 9th Virginia Cavalry, a great-great-uncle, rode with Stuart in the 1st Virginia Cavalry. I came in under a great great uncle who served with General Pickett in the 18th Virginia Infantry. It sounds like you have your bona fides lined up there. Right, if you find out you have a Confederate ancestor, I guarantee you have at least a dozen.
3: So let me ask you this. Literally, something I've never understood is how you are a veteran of the United States Navy, I understand, 20 years, correct? Yes, sir. I've never really understood how somebody could be loyal to the United States and loyal to a nation that tried to leave the United States. Perhaps you can explain that to me. I, I've never understood how people have a Confederate flag and an American flag on their car, since the whole point of the Confederacy was to leave the United States.
8: We thought it was a pretty good idea in 1776 when we left England, and that turned out to be a good idea. Our ancestors. But you don't see you don't see Union Jacks on our cars, though. Well, that's because there's we're the side that separated from the England. But you do see Union Jacks in Williamsburg, and you don't see anybody get upset about that fact because yeah. They're celebrating the history of what happened. The Confederate flag, we're the only section of the country that has a regional flag. I can go anywhere as a Virginian in the South, and when I see that flag, it simply ties me to my brothers in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. I know that my ancestors like theirs fought alongside each other to stand up for American freedoms and rights as expressed in the Constitution of the United States of America—
3: what do you say, though, to black people
8: about that? Again, with these misconceptions about it, I say read and study and find out the truth. Not only did conscripted slaves fight on both sides because they were no, conscripted— No, sir. No, sir. This is not true. And uh, we won't argue about this
3: on the air, but we can't go down this road of all these uh, black people fighting for the Confederacy. Uh, this so no, is, uh, black
8: people, no black people ever fought for the Confederacy?
3: Uh, any numbers of those are trivial compared to the four million people— Held in slavery for two hundred years, and the one hundred eighty thousand who fought for the Union. Okay, so it's a trivial thing. So I'm going to ask the question that's, again.
8: That's fine. That's fine. Okay? But the, I, and I'm not here to defend slavery, and I, I won't. I'm you not trying to, to put that, you in
3: a corner on that. Okay, So yes, I'm just going to ask you the question again and say, "Ask, what do you say to black people when they see the Confederate flag and they think it means something else?"
8: Well, the Confederate flag has been misused. We don't deny that. We can also show you. Uh, films that exist of 40,000 Klansmen marching down Pennsylvania Avenue with the U.S. flag, so that's certainly been misused. We don't approve of these uh, radical, racist organizations using Mm -hmm. our emblem, which we consider a sacred emblem. The flag, as used historically by the Confederate States of America, was a grouping of people fighting for a number of reasons and for their rights as they saw them under the Constitution of America, and it's not against anybody, black, white, or otherwise.
1: Well, yeah, that was uh, an interesting interview and a revealing one. And uh, you did a nice job of handling uh, that gentleman. Uh, I, I'd say he and people like him are appealing to two things, and they leave the flag behind in a way. And that is the idea of transcendent universal values of liberty, for which they think they stand. That's the analogy to the American mm-hmm. Revolution. And also kind of uh, brotherhood, a solidarity with uh, like-minded folk who, who fought the same— well, I would say bad fight, but they fought that fight together, and that's what they're honoring. Uh, What they don't want to remember is uh, what it really was all about and what it would have meant had they been successful. It was, after all, a war for the perpetuation of slavery.
0: And Peter, it might seem trivial uh, and presentist uh, to point out that we're living in an era where fake news is Mm -hmm. a very serious problem. And of course, fake news begets fake history, or vice versa. And without uh, chest-thumping, I do think the kind of courage that Ed demonstrated uh, to simply intervene in that interview, uh, and say, no, sir, we're not going down the road, because that is not factually accurate, is probably as important as any time in my lifetime right now. Backstory is going through some big changes. We're adding some new hosts to our lineup, and they're here with me right now. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Nathan Connolly. We've been hard at work
3: revamping the Backstory podcast, and each episode will do what we always do best. Bring you up-to-date analysis.
6: Using the lens of history to explore the news today.
3: With great storytelling and fun conversation.
5: And because Backstory is partnering with Slate's Panoply Network... All that history will be at your fingertips in podcast form.
3: If you want to hear a preview, go to our website at BackstoryRadio.org or you can search for our podcast
0: in the iTunes store. But remember, we're not leaving the public radio airwaves entirely. We'll be sending stations shorter Backstory segments connected to the news of the day. Those stations will be able to run these pieces alongside the news. If you want to hear it on your public radio station, write to them and ask them to pick it up. Let's turn to a
3: segment from one of our most popular episodes, The History of Islam in America. On that episode, we heard about Islam's hidden history in American slavery and about its influences on contemporary music. But one of the most memorable stories seems especially relevant today as many continue to debate the place of American Muslims in the United States. I'll let Peter set up the story.
1: One Friday in 1976, a group of men broke into a mosque in Dearborn, Michigan. They didn't want to vandalize it. All they wanted to do was pray. For the mosque's members, it was a regular work day. But Friday is a holy day in Islam. And these men, recent immigrants from Yemen and Palestine, were shocked that the mosque was closed. It was the opening salvo in a struggle to control not only the building, but how Islam there would be practiced.
0: The mosque in Dearborn was called the Dix, that's D-I-X, mosque, and was one of just a couple in the area. It had been built in the 1930s by Lebanese immigrants who came to work at the local Ford factory. Like many Muslim communities in Michigan, the Dearborn congregation had developed a religious practice, well, that was pretty different from the Islam practiced in other parts of the world. So you can understand why the newcomers were confounded. Nabil Abraham grew up attending the Dix Mosque in the 1950s and 60s, and he's written about the struggle there. Nabil, welcome to Backstory. Glad to be here. Now, before we get into this struggle that you've written about in the Dix Mosque of the 1970s, why don't you give our listeners a look into
7: what it was like attending the mosque when you were a kid? Well, it was really an an evolving mosque. I didn't realize that at the time, but we were really like a Protestant church. Nobody wore a headscarf. You know, instead of Friday prayers, which is the thing that Muslims do around the world, we had Sunday prayers, we had Sunday school, uh, the basement floor, you might say. That was where all the socializing occurred. There were weddings there, and I remember them. And these were Palestinian weddings. These were people from my father's village. And uh, there would be a fellow with a sword. That always caught my attention. There's this sword comes out of nowhere, and he's (laughs) brandishing it. (laughs) and and doing uh you know like a zorba the greek dance there'd be a lot of sweat people moving and gyrating and dancing and but did you have any sense that that was
0: unusual or you might be violating the
7: religious mores of other worshipers oh no no to us it was completely seemed normal because we didn't have as a community, we didn't have any other places, and it was the life, the center of life for a small group of um, mostly Lebanese and some Palestinian and a few other miscellaneous Muslims. The mosque was accommodating itself to life in America and had been doing so for a while. Uh, there was a women's auxiliary. That seemed to be a little bit more modern or, or progressive.
0: Uh huh. And did those women have much of a say in the mosque?
7: They did because they were raising funds and they were uh, pushing for Arabic language instruction, religious instruction, and they were the ones that I found out later th- through my research were the ones who were, you know, saying, hey, we're losing our young people to outmarriages, who are moving away, who aren't keeping in the community.
0: But the whole time, as I understand it, even before the new immigrants came in the 70s, There are these older directors kind of lurking in the background, and they already had a lot of issues with those more progressive women.
7: Is that right? Yes. Now, there were the old men. The old men had a hand in building this mosque and steering it. And they were right-wing, or let's put it um, crusty, okay? But the guys who were coming in from Yemen, the new immigrants, were looking at the whole picture and saying, this is not authentic, in the old country where we just came from, mosques didn't look like this. They were open on Fridays. There were a lot of men there praying. Uh, and what's with the women running around uh, without headscarves? What, what's with them having, a, you know, raising their voices and, 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 and dictating policy or attempting to? What's with these parties going on? And the old men were looking at these new guys as saying, well, we can use them. We can use them to block the women and put them back in their place.
0: So this new blood this new blood comes in and it in some ways serves the purposes of these older the old guys. Timers, how yes. does
7: that how does that work and out? The, well, it worked out very badly for them and they were told that by the women. They said, "You know, you think you're these guys are your allies. They're going to have your lunch in the future." And they said, "Well, you know, we're in charge and we have the legal documents, etc." But they had one let's call it weakness, <laughs> they had elections.
0: <laughs> so was there, one, was there one key election where the new guys took over?
7: Yes, there was. What happened is they outvoted the, uh, the old-timers, took over the board, and t- took possession of the bank account of the mosque, and they started making policy. And they brought in a ma'am or a sheikh from Yemen, a real hard, rigid fellow, A puritanical guy. And the first thing that guy did is told the women that you are, you know, you're not welcome here doing what you used to do. You're going to use a side entrance. Wow. We're going to put up a curtain. There's going to be gender segregation. And you're not going to raise your voices in here. Well, it didn't take very long for the women to to feel they, know, this was not, they weren't welcome. That's when they went and, and started their own group and the old men were, followed them eventually, and they started Hold on. a new— Wh-
0: Why did those old men follow the women that they had just tried to get rid of?
7: They realized that they would have to sit in the, uh, the back bench, so to speak, or, uh, or leave. And eventually they left and joined with the women to form a— How
0: did the women treat them when they uh, oh, arrived they, they with humili- their
7: tail between their they, legs? They humiliated them. They said, we told you so. <laughs> this is an important point. The women put together this new Islamic center. They put up the money because their purse, their treasury, remained in their hands, whereas the men came penniless. They, they, they made a Faustian bargain and lost. What's, what's the scene today
0: in Dearborn? What, what is the nature of the Islamic
7: community, if you could make a big generalization? Well, there's an enormous diversity, first off. To answer part of that question, what has happened is there's been this enormous mushrooming of mosques, uh, banquet halls, schools, uh, Arabic parochial schools, Muslim schools. So today, Muslims and Islam are part of the, the norm. <laughs> and people who don't agree with the philosophical line, they can go to another mosque, And how is that
0: different, uh, Nabil, than the standard story of religion throughout American history, of congregations fighting over differences of practice, and finally part of the congregation is sent packing. They form their own church in this case, and talking about Protestant 19th century, and you know, eventually there is just this proliferation
7: of churches. You really hit the nail on the head. It's part of that trend. It is the Americanization of Islam in America. They're following in the same steps virtually as the Christian churches, and you could probably add the Judaic institutions.
0: Well, Nabil, I want to thank you for joining us on Backstory. My pleasure. Nabil Abraham is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Henry Ford Community College in Dearborn. In 2014, an 18 year old black man named Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The shooting sparked a national debate on policing in America, one that continues to this day. Two years ago, we took on that debate in a show exploring the history of policing in America. We talked to a former U.S. Senator from Oklahoma named Fred Harris. Harris served on a commission convened in 1967 that examined race and policing in American society. Fifty years later, his findings remained just as relevant as they were back then. Senator Harris had asked President Johnson to create the commission after the Detroit race riots that year. The senator told us he was pleased when the president announced its formation on
2: television. My fellow Americans, I'm tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. And uh, just before uh, uh, he was to go on the the air, I was watching it with some friends. I was watching television. Uh, He called me. And uh, he said, uh, Fred, I'm going to appoint that uh, commission you've been talking about. (laughs) And and I said, well, I I think that's a good thing to do. He said, I'm going to put you on it. Its other members will include Fred R. Harris, the senator from Oklahoma. Edward w. And I Brook said, well, United I hadn't United expected United that, but I'll do the best I can. Miami and he said another thing, Fred. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. He said, I want you to remember you're a Johnson man. He said, if you forget it, I'll take my pocket knife and cut your blank off. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say blank.
0: <laughs> Johnson was warning Harris. The president had a reputation as a civil rights advocate and poverty fighter, and the final report had better reflect that. The commission became known as the Kerner Commission, after the chair, Governor
2: Otto Kerner of Illinois. But it had a more official title. The name of it was the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, and uh, he gave us a charge that involved three questions he wanted us to answer. One was, what happened? Why did it happen? And lastly, what can we do to keep it from happening again and again? We divided up into teams. I was a team with uh, Mayor John Lindsay of New York. Uh, John and I went around the country and visited uh, particular cities where riots had occurred, walked the streets, talked with people, and that gave real uh, substance and put faces on the kinds of things that we heard from the experts. Harris talked with lots of people, including
0: militants and unemployed 20-somethings. He spent a whole day in a Milwaukee barbershop asking customers about the recent unrest. And for those who had grown up someplace in the Deep South, he asked whether they experienced less discrimination up north.
2: And uh, people were puzzled. They didn't know how to respond. What it turned out was... Things were so segregated in these cities that living there in uh, Milwaukee, in the black section, they didn't see any white people at all, except the police. And that gets at one of the Kerner Commission's key findings,
3: that despite civil rights progress in the early 1960s, America
2: was still deeply segregated. The most famous line of the report reads, America is moving toward two countries, one black, one white, separate and unequal. The report pointed to mass unemployment, dismal schools,
3: and substandard housing in African-American neighborhoods as long-standing
2: causes of anger and resentment. People had a lot of really serious grievances and hostility. And we found that the first level of intensity of grievance was, number one, police practices Many people told Harris about being harassed on an almost daily basis by white police
3: officers who lived in other neighborhoods. And residents explained that there was no system for complaining about unfair police practices. And if complaints were made, little or no
2: official action was taken. Hostility was so high in all of these black sections of the cities and, uh, of the country where the riots had occurred that almost any random spark would set them off.
0: When the riots did flare up, says Harris, the police went overboard in their response. Law enforcement officials justified their use of live ammunition on the grounds that
2: they were under siege by sniper fire. And before long, you had the National Guard spraying an apartment building, just spraying it with machine gun fire, because somebody said that's where the fire was coming from. The rumors of snipers and outside agitators
0: were fanned by the FBI and relayed to the president in official reports. They portrayed the riots as part of a huge conspiracy orchestrated by leaders of the Black Panther movement. But the Kerner Commission found no evidence of snipers or conspiracy. It concluded that segregation, lack of economic opportunity, and hostile police were plenty cause enough.
3: Identifying the problem as institutional racism was the easy part. But the Kerner Commission also had to make recommendations. And so it called for job creation and integrated housing to break up segregated urban ghettos. As for the police, the commission recommended new hiring practices that would create a more diverse police force
2: accountable to citizen oversight. We said that uh, police in a neighborhood ought to uh, look a lot like the people in the neighborhood. They ought to be a part of the neighborhood. And... We recommended what came to be called community policing, that the police and and other services of government ought to be out there in the community, available to people, and be a part of the community, and that there ought to be grievance mechanisms. Before things get bad, there ought to be a way by which people could feel that if they made some complaint about the police or whatever, it would be uh, taken seriously and acted upon. In its final report, the Kerner Commission did not
0: mince words. Quote, What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. End quote. Johnson, the president responsible for the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Economic Opportunity Act just a few years before didn't take the report's accusations well. So I had to ask, Harris, did you forget
2: you were a Johnson man? <laughs> no, you know, the a terrible thing uh, happened. We, we think that one member of the commission leaked the report early, and uh, we know from staff and others that Johnson hadn't read the report, but uh, he was told that this report's going to ruin you because it uh, encourages and condones riots and it doesn't have a good thing to say about uh, you, about anything you've done in regard to civil rights. All of that was false. Uh, we put a fellow to work uh, on the commission staff putting together a citation in the report to every place where we had said something complimentary of President Johnson. And and that list came to uh, seven pages, single-spaced, but uh, Johnson never saw that. Johnson refused to meet
0: with the commissioners, and he denied the request for continued investigations. But the National Association of Chiefs of Police were supportive of the commission's work, and in the 1970s, community policing programs began to show up in a lot of American cities. In
3: 1998, 30 years after the report was issued, Harris, now as a professor of political science, co-authored another study. It found that segregation in housing had intensified and African-American unemployment was at crisis levels. The problems haven't changed since then, says Harris, and so the Kerner Commission's
2: recommendations are as relevant as ever. I think a lot of people thought Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and poverty program and all that well we solved all that but it it, it it is true that poverty is worse now in America than it was and uh, we are resegregating and these grievances are growing up again against the police and uh, and, and we're going to see more of this kind of trouble than more of these kind of terrible tragedies as in uh, Ferguson unless we take interest again in you know Thomas Jefferson said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and it's also uh, the price of practicing uh, democracy. Fred Harris
0: represented Oklahoma in the U.S. Senate from 1964 to 1973. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of New Mexico.
3: You know, it's really been nice to listen to all the history that we've covered over the last eight years, even though it was an irrational thing to do all this. Uh, we all have full-time jobs, but it turns out that it was really satisfying, and it also turned out there was a hunger for conversations that show how the past connected to the present and maybe even the future.
1: Uh, I thought once we'd done one or two shows, we wouldn't have any material left, but it it's uh, proved to be inexhaustible. And thanks to the producers uh, pointing us in the right direction, getting good topics, getting good phone calls, uh, listening to each other, uh, because it was, for us, I think, a kind of ongoing seminar, uh, kind of modeling ways to think about history.
3: So, Peter, you know, you're quite the performer. Yeah, you are yeah, yeah. You were always happy when we got out yeah. of the studio, out in front of crowds. What do you remember about some of our live performances?
1: One of the things about live shows, and we've done, I don't know, 15, 20 over the years, uh, they've been a lot of fun. And seeing you two uh
0: live my favorite thing is seeing how nervous you get peter i can't believe it for such a great performer oh yes you do you have a whole ritual you go through of getting nervous yeah but then wow when we're out there it's it's just
1: a kick and to have that direct contact with our listeners we love them but we don't know who they are as
0: a rule well speaking of contact peter we're gonna have a little bit less of it with you as i understand
1: Yes, I
0: plan to hang in you there better. now
1: and again. Uh, but we've got an expanded team of uh, truly young people. That's all relative, of course, because I don't think they're that young. But
0: Peter, would you like to introduce our new team?
1: Yeah. We have Nathan Connolly from Johns Hopkins University. Hey, thanks so much, Peter. It's great to have you with us. And my former student, I'll risk saying that. That's the She's fourth one. shaking your head again. vigorously, <laughs> Jolly, Peter. I <Have> am <laughs> no. not. <laughs> Joanne Freeman denying paternity here is uh, from Yale University. Joanne and Nathan bring some fresh perspectives and uh keep you guys on your toes and me too when I show up. I'm looking forward to it. Peter, do you have any advice for these rookies? Well, I think they've got to remind themselves to bring their sense of humor with them and uh don't overprepare as my advisor. <laughs>
7: I don't know. It's kind of shocking
5: to tell me not to be (laughs) overprepared.
6: Nathan? I'm looking forward to bringing up the past. And I think one of the things about this show that I always loved is that you guys have been excellent at bringing up everybody's past in a way that makes a lot of sense and makes sense of the world. And, you know, I have to ask you, Peter, you know, give me some advice on what to expect and how to deal with these jokers in the studio. Yeah, well, joking, you use the right word. Joking (laughs) is it.
1: I've always been surprised at what we have to say, and we didn't know we were going to say it. Uh, And that spirit of spontaneity, I think, is really important. History is so rich, and there's so many wonderful people out there in the world to talk to and things to think about. Uh, but often, you're going to be in on the discovery of things you didn't know about, and it's tremendous
3: fun. So, Peter, thanks for those great words of advice, and thanks for the kind welcome to Joanne and Nathan. Hey, folks, welcome. We're delighted. Welcome aboard.
6: <laughs> we are here.
2: It's Hi, too
0: late to get out <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> Lock that door. It's open. And, it's Peter, all good. we look forward to having you
3: come back as we set out on the next stage of the journey of Backstory. We invite all our listeners to... Download the podcast. Come to us when you see us in live performance in your neighborhood. And keep calling in, sending us your notes because we basically need you to know what it is that people want to know about.
2: The best is yet to come and babe, won't it be fine?
1: That's gonna do it for today. Remember to check out our preview of the new Backstory podcast on iTunes and on our website, BackstoryRadio.org. The first episode with our new hosts launches February 3rd. If you don't know how to get podcasts, just send us an email to ask. We're happy to help you make sure you keep getting the new Backstory. The address is Backstory at Virginia also, be sure to let your hometown public radio station know if you want to hear Backstory's short news segments on your airwaves in the future. And check us out on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever
3: you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramon Martinez. Jamal Milder is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional segments heard today were produced by Tony Field, Jess Bretson, Eric Minnell, Kelly Jones, and Robert Armengall.
0: Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Wait till you see that sunshine
6: plays. Ain't nothing like it here. Yeah.
2: The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine?
4: Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia, and the Dorothy Compton professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA, and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.
0: Backstory is distributed by PRX,
2: the Public Radio Exchange.